Good morning. Welcome to West Hills. Anybody want to have church in the park today instead? I was supposed to preach outside in the, in the park three weeks ago, and uh, it was too hot. Now it's too hot in here, so I don't know. I, I guess as long as I'm developing a reputation for bringing the heat, that's an okay thing. But uh, Welcome to West Hills. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here, filling in for our senior pastor, Gary Brooks, this morning. It's great to be with you, and it's especially wonderful to have you with us, especially if you're new. Um, met a couple new folks this morning. It's, it's awesome to have you uh, worshiping with us this morning. Um, has anyone ever heard of the concept of backward design? That's where I want to start this morning. Backward design. Maybe a few fellow educators in the room. No? Okay, good. I can, I can educate you this morning. So I had the, um, the displeasure and misfortune of um, enrolling in a secondary education class when I was in my final year um, of, of divinity school, actually, at Vanderbilt. I was thinking, what do, I, what do I do with my life? I can't go into ministry. Um, I'll teach. I'll teach uh, high schoolers. And so I enrolled in this course, credits transfer, all great, until the first day of class. And I knew within the first 10 or 15 seconds this was um, a big mistake because our professor came in and she introduced herself and she, she told us that her experience was actually in, she had been in uh, elementary, early elementary education for 20 plus years, um, but it's okay. She's teaching this class about teaching high schoolers because basic principles of education are the same for kindergartners as they are for seniors in high school. Now, I don't know about you, but I never got sentenced to the timeout corner when I was a senior in high school. But I kid you not, I did in graduate school in this woman's class. Uh, I've, I guess I've, I've always been a little bit of a class clown, um, but I didn't know that timeout corner was a thing in grad school, uh, but, but it was for me. So um, I don't know about her whole philosophy, but I do know that there was one really important takeaway from that class for me that I've, that I've used in a lot of different walks of life, not just in teaching, but in preaching and in, uh, in coaching. And, and I mean, I think it would be, beneficial for you, you know, whether wherever your, your your job, your CEO, whatever, and that's this principle of backward design. Okay, so let me try and explain it. Basically, the premise is uh, you start with the end in mind. Um, when when you're trying to accomplish a goal, you start with that goal and then you you backfill and so you, and you determine how you're going to go about reaching that goal, what steps you need to put in place in order to, to incrementally get you closer to help accomplish that goal from there, right? So if I'm teaching, I don't want to just start with uh, what's the curriculum for today. I want to start with that question of what, what do I, if nothing else, if, if my kids don't walk into my classroom learning anything else, what, I want them, what do I want them to get this morning, this, this afternoon, today in class? And then what are the, the principles that I need to help them understand in order to, to move them towards that, to where they can walk out of the class understanding that? And this morning, I think Peter is going to actually use this principle of backward design for us to help us understand not only what our goal as Christians should be, as believers in, in, in all of life, but also the steps that are required of us to then get there. How do we, how do we get to that goal? It's not a one-step process, so how do, how do we reach that? And so if you would, 
Um, would you stand as you're able uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word? We're gonna, that's a, a theme of this morning that we'll get to later. Um, and would you actually just read, read this along with me? We'll read it out loud. This is from 1, 22 through 25. Let's read it together. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails. Word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that as we gather here this morning and submit ourselves to the truth of your word, Father, that you would bless this time, that you would bless that effort, that submission. Father, we trust in your promise this morning that your word is living and abiding. It's powerful and effective to accomplish its purpose. We know that you have a goal, a purpose for our lives, for having us here this morning. And it's only by submitting, hearing, and applying your word that it's going to get done in our lives. And so would you empower us, strengthen us, motivate us, quiet our hearts and our minds to everything else going on in life right now that we might make the soil of our hearts fertile for the, the planting of your imperishable seed, the good news, the word of God. We thank you for your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so if, if Peter is starting with the end in mind, if that's kind of the premise here, uh, and these steps are not necessarily in, in order, so it'll get a little tricky for you, but I want to make this interactive. I want us to engage in the text this morning together, especially with as hot as it is. Get a little audience participation. Don't make sure you're not falling asleep on me. Um, what, what, is, what is the goal? What is the goal for Peter? What is the thing that he's, step number five, the ultimate goal that we're, we're trying to work towards that God wants to move us towards that we see in this passage this morning. And I'll give you a hint. There's only one imperative verb in the passage. All right, so, so what is it? Louder. Love. It's love. It's right there in verse 22. Good. That is the goal. That's step number five there. That's where he ultimately wants us to end up is, is love. All right. And, and specifically sincere, brotherly love. That's the way he puts it. I'll use Gary's strategy of the repetition. So we're going to have five S's this morning. The first one is sincere love. It's earnest love. Not just any love. Not just the world's definition of, of love. You know, acceptance or whatever that is. No, biblical love. True love. Christ-like love. That's what he wants for us. That's it. Love. In the words of the Beatles, all you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Right? But they, of course, were plagiarizing Jesus right? because that was Jesus's thing. All you need is love. What did Jesus say when the Pharisees tried to trip him up? They tried to catch him. They're like, oh, I, I, we know how we'll get him. There's 613 laws. We'll ask him which one's most important. And then when he answers, you know, we've got him because he's undermined the importance of all the other laws. And Jesus says, wrong. Right? I'll give you one law, one or two. And in those two you, I will have undergirded all the rest of the law. I will support it and summarized and fulfilled all the other law. What does he say in Matthew 22? 
If you don't have any other passage of Scripture memorized, memorize this one. This is, <laughs> this is Jesus' greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love the Lord, uh, sorry, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And on these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. Right? Jesus says love is all you need. I'm going to simplify the 613. You know, we're trying to simplify the tax code right now. This is Jesus simplifying the, the pharisaical you know, code back then. I'm going to simplify all 613, make it really easy, love. In a word, it's love. He says, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's his commandment. Love is, a, is, is Jesus's command. And this is important. So when Paul says in Romans 6, 14, that we're no longer under the law, now we're under grace. Don't get that confused, Christians, right? He's, he's saying we're no longer under the law, the 613 laws, the Old Testament rabbinical, you know, Jewish law. That's the law we're no longer under. We're under a law, though. Right? Paul would never say there's no, no longer any law, any law. Right? That, that's called antinomianism. That's an AKA doctrinal heresy. Right? That is not who we are as Christians. There is a law. Jesus gives us a law, a commandment. But it's a new law. It's a good law. Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in Matthew 5. Right? And this new law I give you, a new commandment to love. And that's the, that's the beauty of God's new law that Jesus came to bring. Is that it doesn't feel like law. Does I mean, love doesn't feel like a rule. It doesn't feel like a have to. Does it? I mean, sometimes it does. Let's just get this one out of the way. Some, there's the whole love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you thing. All right, so we, and we all have like that one or two people for whom, frankly, it's a chore to love them. It is hard. But even then, right, I mean, even, even in those exceptional cases where we, we wish Jesus would have, like, given us that, that one exception clause, you couldn't have just left that loophole open, Jesus, like, I give you a new command, love everyone except one freebie, everybody gets one freebie. Even in those cases, though, even in your freebie case that you want, right, it's still good. The, his law is still good, isn't it? I mean, don't, when you love that person, as difficult as it is, when you do it and you love them, don't you still feel good? That's the thing. Is God has actually wired us at a chemical level, a physical level, for love. I was just watching a TED Talk about this just this past week. We get a hit of oxytocin. Every time we do something nice, kind, loving for someone else, it's like our reward center in our brain is saying, here's something good for you and something good for me. You know, we, we release oxytocin and it makes us happy and it makes us feel good. It's, it's good to love. We want to love. I mean, no one is sitting here listening to this thinking, no, I think I'm good. I think I'll stay here and not love people. You're not, you're not thinking that, right? We want to love. It's good. First John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. I, my yoke is easy. My, my burden is light. Jesus says the, 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 the yoke of the 613 laws, the checklist, the going outside the camp, every time you do and don't do this, and what, all of that is just lifted because it's love. Right? And it's good. Simply love him and love others. That's it. Now, 
I just made a joke accidentally and nobody laughed. So we gotta, we gotta back up and let me try this again. That's his law. Simply love God. Simply love others. Simply. Right, that's a joke. Because is it simple? Right? I mean, as much as nobody would raise their hand and say, no, I, I don't want to love anymore, would any of y'all raise your hands this morning and say, I don't know that I need this sermon. I don't know that I need Peter to, to help me build these steps towards love because I just do it naturally. I'm just really good at it. If you raise your hand, we're all scooching away and bracing ourselves for the lightning because you're lying in church. I mean, it's, it's not easy. It's good, but it's not easy. His law is good, but it's not easy. We need a lot of help. In fact, Jesus says in John 15, 5, it's downright impossible without him. Right? He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Much less love. I mean, that, that's the highest calling there is, to love like Jesus loves, totally selflessly. Right? To, to truly love like he loved. It's got to come from him, not from us. Apart from me, right? It would be like picking up one of these dead branches that all the wind and rain is knocked down and trying to make it produce fruit. That's the analogy he gives us. Good luck. And so that brings us to our next point, to step number four. If it's that difficult, if the calling is that high and that hard, the expectation, the bar is, is raised that high, selfless, Christ-like love, if that's what he wants for us and from us, how's that going to happen? What's the source of that? Where's it going to come from? Audience participation, your turn. Still there in verse 22. How are we going to love? Love one another from? A pure heart. A pure heart. It says, having purified your soul. Now, you can actually love. It's got to come from a pure heart, a purified, sanctified, fancy Christianese word that just means made holy. Right? But that's what's got to happen. Transformation. Transformation. Romans seven eighteen says, nothing good dwells in me. Nothing naturally good in my inherent, inherited, sinful, fleshly, deepest part of my heart that I was born with, original sin. There's nothing good there. It's, it's all selfish and, and self-centered. And Jesus says, Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the hands act, the love happens. Everything external is just an, an outward cropping, outcropping of what's going on in the internal, deeper, inward reality, Right? And so if it's going to be sincere love, genuine love, biblical, Christ-like love, it's got to come not from within me, but from him. And ultimately, over time, here's the, the, the tricky part, is it does actually come from within me over time. But only insofar as he is externally coming in and by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit, transforming my heart less and less into the image of me and the, the broken, fallen, sinful in, in born image that I, that, that, that's been there from birth and, and reforming me more into the image of Christ. It's Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's, it's insofar as we put to death, the way Paul puts it, the things of the flesh, the old ways. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. Right? 
as we put to death our old habits and the old ways of our heart and are reshaped, transformed into his image. Now, here's the thing. We read those bold, powerful declarations of the faith that Paul writes there, and, but, and you can almost, and if you read on, you'll hear him. You can almost hear Paul wanting to add to it. Lord, let that be true of me today. Right? I mean, these are vision statements, right? This is like, you know, when you write a vision statement, we're going to be the top church in the, you know, this is what we're aiming for. This is what we're striving for. This is the, the end to which we toil. We'll get to that in a minute. This is, this is our vision, our pursuit, our trajectory, our calling. But it's like Paul has to add that qualifier, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I know in my head that this is who I am, my new identity in Christ. I, I, I've died to the old self. I want to live to new life in you, you know, your indwelling spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is raising me from the, the deadness of my sin and the deadness of my heart and making my dead heart beat and transforming a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. All of that. He's like, I, I get it in my head. But it's not my everyday reality still, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's got to sink in deeper and deeper every day over time into my heart. Romans 7, it's, it's not my everyday experience. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what does he say? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will deliver us. He will. He's faithful and he promises and he will deliver us. But it's a process, right? It is a, a process. It is a slow burn, a grind. Sanctification is by definition the process of being transformed from less and less of us into more and more of Jesus, from who I was yesterday to who I am today, by God's grace, praise the Lord, to who I, he wants me to be, who I will become tomorrow and in the future, by God's grace, praise be to Jesus, who is delivering me. But it's 2 Corinthians 3.18, he's doing it, he's transformed, we're being transformed into the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. We got to get the, it's like a 180 degree turn, right? I mean, from totally depraved, selfish, sinful, inherent will to Jesus is a 180 degree turn. And so that's one degree at a time. That, that is a slow, you know, change in trajectory. Right? And, and, and so it only makes sense that to go from me to, to Jesus in my heart, the purification of heart and spirit and soul, that that would take like a really long time. Lifelong, in fact. It's a lifelong process. Now, important distinction here that I don't want us to, to miss, to get wrong. Salvation, different story. We'll get to that in a minute. But salvation, uh, at salvation, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us the hour I first believed, right? So, so amazing grace, the hour you first believe, the, when God looks at you in his eyes, in the eyes of a holy, perfect God, when he looks at you from the, the moment before salvation to the moment after salvation, you go from Hitler to Jesus, like that, in his eyes. I mean, in an instant, right? But sanctification, not just how he sees us, but who we are. I mean, at our deepest level, who we are, that heart, character, identity, it's being changed one degree at a time. 
It's a slow, long process. And, and here's what I want to really emphasize this morning. It's not just is it a long process. It's also not an automatic process. This is really important for us to grasp, believers, this morning. Sanctification is not an automatic process. It's no guarantee any more than you getting married automatically and moving in with your spouse automatically brought you closer to that person. I mean, physically it did. Geographically moving in, it brought you closer. Right, but can we just get really honest this morning? Would, would anybody say like, yeah, over time in our marriage, we've gotten closer, but like from the day before we got married to the day after, to the week after, month after, right? I mean, that, that can be a learning, growing process, right? Sometimes it's easier to date our spouses than it was to be married to them for the first month or year or however long, you know, it took for you, right? Would anybody else? Okay, I'm the only one. Somebody, some of y'all are smiling. But seriously, and Polly would say it even more for me. So we're, you know, we're just, let's clear that up. Um, because why? Because... Now, you know, you, you love this person, you invite him in, it's beautiful. Let's flip back to the analogy of Jesus, though. But now he's up in your business, and he's folding your laundry, and he's putting it in all these drawers that, you know, I mean, he's cleaning up stuff in your heart, and it's good, and you know it's good, but it's not the way you've done it. I mean, you're used to living in whatever pigsty mess that you wanted to all your life, and now here comes Jesus up in your business messing stuff up. And that, that can be difficult, right? And, and so this sanctification thing, it's not an automatic thing. It is not a guarantee that when you invite Jesus into your heart that, you know, it just automatically happens for you and just now I'm, I'm just in, in love with Jesus and want to spend every moment with him. And, and if that's your story this morning, you're like, I don't know what this guy is talking about. He's crazy. From the day I gave my life to Christ, I have to like set a timer on an alarm on my phone to remind myself to, to stop, you know, spending time with God and his word and in prayer and stuff and remind myself to go back to watching TV and spending time with my family and go to work and stuff. Cause I just love being with Jesus so much for the last 30 years. Every day is, if that's your story, then praise God. I mean, that is wonderful for you. And can you come teach me about that or how to do that or something like that because I, I, I just suspect that for most of us that is not our story. Thank you. Amen. I'm not the only one. Thank you, Latasha. I, I, for most of us, that is just not our story, right? It, it, this is a process. Our relationship with God is just like any other process, and, it, it, and it's long, and it's hard, and we, and we grind away at it, and, it, and over time, it becomes easier, right? That's why Paul says, work out your own salvation, with fear and trembling. We gotta work this thing out. Right? We, we looked at this a couple weeks back with 1 Peter uh, 1 and verse 13 where Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare for action. Be sober-minded. And Paul said, train yourself for godliness. To this end, we toil and we strive. This is you know, difficult stuff. Relationships are, are hard work. They take work. That's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth the work. But it's going to take effort. And so... If that's the case, if that's true, if it takes effort, if relationships are a two-way street, and we've got to come to this, right? I mean, unless you can find some passage of Scripture that I can't, where Jesus or Paul say, you know, believe in the Lord, uh, and you will be saved, and then after that, just coast, and he'll do the rest. Unless you can find that in Scripture where I can't, and this is, we agree that this is, you know, discipline, difficult type work, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling then how do we do that? Right, that's our next question. How do we do that? What's the fuel that, that makes this sanctification process machine run? What is the fuel that we're feeding it? Number three, you tell me. Your turn. Look back at verse 22. We're still in verse 22. 
How do we purify our souls, church? By obedience to the truth. You see that? Step three. Step number three. By obedience to the truth. By placing ourselves in submission under the truth of God's word and then applying it and walking it out in tangible ways of obedience in every area of our lives. That's it. Submission. Now, here's the problem with that. Most of us uh, as believers, a lot of us at least, I find myself falling into this trap. <clears throat> we want to flip the, the order here of steps three and four. We get them reversed. We get steps number three and four reversed. Right? And so we tend to think that you know, if, if God would just purify my heart and draw me more to himself, then it'll get easier to obey. And that's, of course, true. As we're sanctified over time, we grow in our Christ-likeness and grow in that relationship. Of course, we love him more. We want to spend. It does become easier. That's true. But here's a question for us this morning. Does that mean that we wait? Is that the order? Does Peter say... Uh, having, having purified your souls, now you can go and obey him. No, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience. He's really clear on the order, right? Obedience comes first, and then sanctification happens. Right? Do, we, do, we, do we wait until it becomes easier and more natural? Do we wait until we want to obey him to do it? That's, that's, a, that's a big question for us that we've got to get honest with ourselves about this morning. Our obedience to God is not predicated on our desires. It can't be. Rather, our obedience will over time shape our desires. Let me say that again. I think it's really important. Our obedience to God is not supposed to be, cannot be, predicated on, dictated by, determined by, waiting on our sanctification. We don't wait to obey until we feel like it. We obey, and then over time, it gets easier to obey, and we want to obey. We willingly obey more as we grow in our relationship with Him. Really practical example of this. Won't apply to any of y'all, I know, here at West Hills, um, but, but to a lot of Christians out there, let's just use this practical example. A lot of Christians don't read the Bible. Why don't they read it? Because they don't want to. I don't feel like it. They don't naturally, they, they don't say yes to Jesus and then just instantaneously, instantaneously like desire more to spend time with him. And that's the trap that we fall into is we think that one day we'll just wake up and whether it's because God has just sanctified us overnight or the NFL has become political enough or whatever, we'll just magically desire to spend time with him and his word more than turning on the TV, right? That's just not what Peter says is the order here, is it? He says, obedience to God shapes and drives and motivates the desires of our hearts over time. That it fuels that sanctification process. We obey and it fuels our sanctification. You won't find it in scripture because it wouldn't rhyme in Greek and be catchy, but fake it till you make it. I mean, it's kind of a biblical concept here. If you don't feel like it, Nike, just do it, all right? That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what Peter is after here. I'll give you a, a practical analogy from the, the world of physiology and, and psychology. I, I use this one all the time because I, I love it. I think it's, it's a great analogy for this. We tend to think that we smile when we're happy, right? When I'm happy, I feel good and, and I feel like I want to smile, right? And that's true. But the did you know that the reverse is also true? 
when you smile, we know this from brain scan experiments, when you smile, uh, your body releases endorphins that then actually makes you happier. And so next time you feel down, just trick your body, just force yourself to smile. Like you stub your toe and just, I'm gonna you know, grit and bear it and smile. Now, not necessarily advocating that in all situations. I, there's a time for everything under, under the sun, a time to, to mourn and a time to be happy and dance. But all I'm trying to get at here is this relationship, this cause and effect relationship between smiling and happiness, between obedience to truth and purification of heart. It's more complicated than just, I feel like it, so then I do it, right? I do it, and then over time I start to feel like doing it. That's, that's sanctification. It's driven by our submission. Now, here's the danger the second danger, the other danger, that's even bigger than that, that first danger. There's a danger for us as believers to flip the order of number, step number three and step number four. Here's the even bigger danger for you this morning for us. Flipping the order of number two and number three as we start to transition here. This is one where we can't get it wrong. We cannot confuse the, the, the steps of step number three and step number two. And yet, the more I talk to, to you all and hear your faith stories and reflect on my own and all of that, the more I realize how common it is and how true it is that we've reversed the order of step number two and step number three. We get it wrong. And, and how many of us want to enter this process of growing in our love and growing in our Christ-likeness by stepping right into the process at step number three. We think, man, if I can just obey hard enough, if I can just keep the law enough, if I can just be good enough, right? And we forget that our obedience, our purification of soul and heart and, and mind, our, our love, it's all predicated on something even more fundamental that's got to come first. Step number two. We purify our souls, number four, by our obedience, number three, for a sincere love, number five. How? What does he say in verse 23? By being born again. Since you have been born again. Since you've been born again. This whole thing, it's, it's predicated on salvation. And if you're here this morning and, and you're tempted to confuse that, let's just, for starters, this might be liberating to somebody, eye-opening to somebody this morning. How many of y'all would be honest enough to say that I flipped this order in my life and before I finally just gave up in exhaustion and gave my life to Christ and surrendered to him and say, you've got to be my righteousness because I can't be it. How many of y'all would just be honest enough to, to help someone and encourage someone else out this morning to say, man, I absolutely worked my fingers down to the bone trying to earn God's approval, trying to earn God's love, trying to earn God's favor trying to earn my salvation anybody else is that anybody else's story this morning amen i'm not the only one all right I, I'm, I'm just constantly amazed at how many times i hear that that phrase in our stories i thought i had to clean up my act and then i could invite god in. i could come to god and y'all said that phrase before i thought i had to clean up my act yeah if that's you this morning and you still, you're still struggling with the step number two, with being born again. Can I just encourage you this morning? Forget everything else I've said, because frankly, steps three through five don't apply to you yet. 
forget all of that and just focus on God's word, God's promise this morning. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You say, but you don't know. You don't know my story. You don't know the sin in my heart. You know, if I could just, this one thing, if I could just clean up this closet, then I could invite him into my house and it would just be... God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And here's the thing this morning. If you flip the order of number two and number three, and you're trying to do it on your own, and you try and enter this process at step number three, you're actually... You're actually being, this, the rest of the process is actually hazardous to your relationship with Christ. It's hazardous to, to your relationship, your walk with God, your faith. It may be, if you're like those of us who raised our hand a moment ago, steps number three through five might be the very thing that stands in your way of step number two of being born again. You are trying to artificially produce fruit on a dead branch. And God's saying to you this morning, while you're yet a sinner, I sent him to die for you. Can I just, if that's you, if that's somebody, anybody here this morning, you need to hear this. Whatever it is, whatever that, that room that you're trying to clean up so that you can invite God over for dinner, whatever that is, can I just tell you from God's word, he knows. He knows it already. Do you really think that God doesn't know your heart more than you do anyway? He knows it. You can't hide it. You can't. And he loves you. He knows and he loves you anyway. That's the gospel. More sinful than we ever dared imagine. More love than we ever dared to hope for. And can I just encourage you this morning and challenge you to think about that this morning. If you could clean it up, if you could clean up the mess on your own, do you realize that Christ died for nothing? If we could do it on our own, if we could just start with step number three, Jesus' precious blood was shed for nothing. He died for nothing. It was pointless. Thanks be to God, through Christ, He has purchased our obedience, our sanctification, our salvation. Here's the thing. Some of you are like, that's got to be the end of the sermon, right? Because salvation. I mean, what's more fundamental than salvation? But notice that's number two. As step number two, did you know that there's something even more foundational to this whole process that God desires for us to ultimately lead us to love? There's something even more foundational than our own individual salvation stories. And I bet you can guess what it is because it's where Peter spends the bulk of the passage that we don't have time to spend the bulk of our time. But we're going to end with this. Verses 23 through 25. What is it? What's more foundation even than your own individual salvation story? What is it? Louder, Steve. God's word. You can be proud of it. Shout it out. God's word. It's the word of God. God's overarching story in scripture 
for salvation, not just of, of me and you, but ultimately redeeming all of creation back to himself. That overarching narrative of salvation that we see unfolding in scripture, that is even more foundational than your own, my own individual salvation stories. Because here's the thing, and here's the really humbling truth, not to diminish anybody this morning, make anybody feel, but this should just make it, put us in our place in a really good way this morning. Did you know that God's word stands whether you and I believe it or not? I mean, you can give up on God tomorrow. I mean, I can, a lot of people have, a lot of people do. You know, most of the world doesn't believe it. Most of history, people in history haven't believed it. Most in the future probably won't believe it. God's word remains and endures forever. God's truth does not change yesterday, today, or tomorrow based on my or your obedience to it or belief in it. The word of the, God, of the Lord remains. It endures forever. And Jesus says all of heaven and earth will pass away. I mean, you and I, we're here today and, and gone tomorrow. Jesus says all of heaven and earth is here today and gone a billion years from now. It's all going to burn. But the word of the Lord remains forever. There's one thing that remains forever. It's the word of the Lord. And here's, here's the encouraging, beautiful truth that I want to leave you with this morning is Isaiah 55 promises it will not return void. Yeah. Not only does it endure forever, but it's powerful and it's effective and it does not come up empty. This, this metaphor that Peter uses here is particularly personal for me this morning as I've shared with y'all in, in my previous sermon. We're still trying to grow grass in our yard and so I just had to kind of laugh me preaching on this passage this morning like the grass withers and the flower falls like really God I, I needed the reminder I couldn't just look out my window every day and be reminded that grass is really hard to grow alright thanks a lot but here's the thing I told y'all in my last sermon I got out there spent a whole day watering it aerating it tilling it, jacking that soil up, watering it again, spreading the seeds, watering it, you know, working it, working the soil. And it's amazing. We have a few blades of grass starting to come up. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. The, the, I love his word picture here, but you know what's even more amazing almost than the fact that we have those few blades of grass? As I'm, I, I look up, I'm reminded of how much work it was and how many seeds I spread that didn't sprout. I can like still see them on the top of the soil and the birds ate them. And how many of those seeds didn't take root and sprout? Can I tell you this morning, God's word will not return void. It is powerful and effective. What does Isaiah 55 say? It, it, it shall accomplish. The word, my, uh, God says, my word shall accomplish that for which I purpose it. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. And so can I just leave you all with this encouragement this morning? If you're here this morning and maybe you've been going to church, maybe you had a love-hate relationship with Jesus for a while. I don't know your heart. God does. But maybe you feel like, man, I'm still not there. Step one, step two, I'm, I'm still wrestling with that. Can I just encourage you? Don't give up. If you feel like God's word has not yet taken root in the soil of your heart, God says it's imperishable seed. This is not perishable seed, like the stuff that Will put in his grass, the 
that the birds eat and half, you know, a quarter of it grows. This is imperishable seed and it will not return void. If you're here and you're struggling with, with, with salvation and just surrender to God and I don't know if the Bible's true and all of that, can I just encourage you, don't give up. Dig in deeper. Double down. Go, go deeper. With, with God this morning. We, we pray that as a church, we would be people, I would be a leader, and, and we would be people where you could hear the word of God preached and unpacked faithfully for you so that you can understand it and begin to soften that soil of your heart. That's what we want to be for you. Um, for those of us who are believers, where that, that seed has already taken root, praise God today for that. Be reminded of your salvation. Thank him for his word, for the gospel that it's taken root in, your, in the soil of your heart. Um, maybe there's people in your life, for all of us, there are people in your life for whom you are praying and you are sharing and you are trying to plant seeds and you're trying to invest and you feel like you've been at it forever. Can I just encourage you this morning? Don't give up. God is faithful. His word endures forever and it does not return void. That is God's promise to us. You are sowing imperishable seeds of faith and God promises my word will not return void. Parents, maybe it's your kids. Maybe your adult kids. Maybe some of y'all came to faith later in life. You're like, man, I just, you're feeling the weight of, of all these regrets piled a mile high. I just feel like I screwed up with my kids and I screwed them up. Guess what? You probably did join the club. We all do. I mean, that's our job as parents is just to try and leave them a little less screwed up than our parents left us, right? You screwed them up. But let me ask you, did, have you sown seeds of faith? Have you also preached God's word to them? Have you shared scripture with them? The word of the Lord. Because if you have, you've sown eternal, living, abiding, eternal truth in their hearts. And God says it won't return void. He is up to something. He's not done with them yet, so you don't be done with them yet either. Keep praying. Keep working on it. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep sharing it. Keep loving. Sincerely loving. Keep doing it. God is faithful. He's up to something. It's never too late. Finally, if God's word in your own heart has accomplished that, that purpose and salvation, but you're still in that process of learning to, to submit and, and to be sanctified by it and to obey it and to let it change you and purify your heart. First of all, you're not alone in that either. Join the club. That's, we're all in that, that battle, that struggle. It's a, it's a fight to, for relationship and, and, and to, to surrender to God's will and to be changed over time in obedience to, to the truth. But there's a reason that we start with step one. There's a reason that Peter spends most of his time on the word of the Lord, because this is where it all starts, guys. This is where it all starts. This is where it's got to all start. And, and I'll just leave you with this, that I don't want to speak for Gary, but I will because I know he'd agree with me. As pastors, we would love for West Hills to be known as a praying church. We would love for West Hills to be known as a worshiping church. We would love for West Hills to be known as a serving church, an outreach, missional church, an hospitable church. I mean, I could just go down the list of our vision for, for this church. But if I, if I had to pick one, if we have to pick one, let's be a scripture, a Bible-grounded, Bible-rooted church. 
Because here's the thing, it's the first step. The catch is, it's, it's like that genie thing and wishing for a million other wishes. We get all the rest of it. If we get this in our hearts, we get the rest of it anyways. It's the seed. It's the seed in the soil of our hearts. And it will grow and it will not return void. But it's only as we study it and submit to it and let it change us and submit to it in obedience that it, that it starts that process. It doesn't do any good on the shelf. All right? So let's get after it. Are you with me? Let's do it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you for the promise that your word is powerful and effective to accomplish the purpose for which you intend it. And we know that that purpose is our salvation, which leads to our obedience, which leads to our sanctification, which leads to love, which leads to a changed world. God, give us that kind of vision for the world. Let us not just be selfish Christians who just think about our own salvation, our own sanctification. Give us a vision for others. Give us your heart, Jesus, for this world and for seeing it changed by the power of the gospel and drawn, redeemed back to you. And Father, would you remind us through this, this good news from First Peter this morning that it all starts with your word, with scripture. Give us a love for your word. Father, I do pray that you would, you would motivate our obedience to the truth, even when we don't feel like it. But Father, if you would this morning, move in our hearts and, and do stir us and call us to yourself and, and, and cause us to want to love you. Cause us to want to spend time with you, to prioritize that and to dig into the truth of your word and let it change us. Father, we, we trust and we know that it's powerful and able and that that's what you desire. And so... Give us hearts after your own heart. And we'll give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.